Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that you would come to us now, fill us with your spirit, give us all wisdom and insight, help us to see what is here before us in your word, and I pray that you would change us by it. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. A little while back, Susan and I watched a movie called The Founder, which is the, uh, it's based on a true story. I'm not sure if it is absolutely all undisputedly accurate, could be fictionalized, but the movie is about the founder of McDonald's, the Golden Arches, a guy named Ray Kroc. And um, it's really a, a riveting story, at least this, this movie version of it. Uh, Ray Kroc had made a humble living as a traveling milkshake mixer salesman. That's what he was. And he traveled all over the country selling these mixers, and he was kind of down and out, wasn't doing that very good of a, a job of it, but there was this one hamburger joint in San Bernardino, California that ordered one day eight mixers from him, and he could not figure out. He, he was having a hard time selling these things, and all of a sudden, somebody wants to buy eight of them, and so he has to go to this place and figure out why in the world somebody would need eight milkshake mixers at one hamburger stand, and what he discovered there in San Bernardino was this little hamburger stand that was the most vibrant, attractive burger stand he'd ever seen. And they were doing, they were just going like gangbusters in terms of their, their business. They were selling a ton of burgers and they needed all those milkshake mixers. And back then, burger joints were places where bikers and seedy personalities tended to hang out. This burger stand in San Bernardino, however, was a, a family place. And not only that, but the brothers who owned that store had perfected what they called the speedy system, which meant you weren't waiting around all day for your food. It was up within a few minutes. And they were running this really tight ship. It was clean, family-oriented. It was a great place. And so Croc became convinced that he could franchise this. The brothers had tried to do it, but they'd, they'd failed. But he, knew, he thought that he could franchise it and turn this into a huge nationwide thing. And so that's what he did. And the whole rest of the movie is the story of him doing this and turning that one idea of a store into the fast food behemoth that we all know today. And so as you're watching this story unfold about Ray Kroc and this vision that he had, you find yourself pulling for him. I mean, he's starting out selling milkshake mixers, and then all of a sudden he's turning this thing into this huge corporation. And so he finds this great product and he turns it into a massive success nationwide. But somewhere along the way, in this story, the, it starts to get really kind of dark. As Ray Kroc begins to achieve professional and financial success, his faithfulness to his wife falls apart. He's gone all the time. He's never home. And the woman who stuck with him in the lean years, in the milkshake mixer years, he finally puts her out to pasture and he goes and takes up with another woman who's actually married to another man. 
And not only that, he begins to run roughshod over his business partners, the two brothers who own that original store and whose ideas were the basis for Ray Kroc's success. He wrested control of the company from them and bought them out. And the brothers failed to retain control even of the name McDonald's, and they were forced to rename their own store in San Bernardino. And then Ray Kroc built a store, a McDonald's, across the street from them and ran them out of business. And so here was this man given this stewardship of a big idea, and by all worldly standards, he was as successful as, successful as he could be. He had achieved the American dream, but by human standards, he was utterly unfaithful. He had broken faith with his friends, broken faith with his business partners, and he had, he had broken faith with his, his wife. And so you have this kind of a cautionary tale by the time you finish this movie. And you can see that it's possible to be a success at all the wrong things while being a failure at all the important things. And a lot of us, know, you would think that we know this. And yet, even though we, you would think that we know this, we often do not live like we know this. We are so prone to live our lives defining success by worldly standards rather than by God's standards. We all do it because we all like winners. We want to be winners. And, and sadly, we often bring those measures of success, that warped method of evaluation into the church. There are so many Christians who think that the most important thing about a church is how big the membership is, how impressive the building is, how charismatic the pastor is as a speaker. And church leaders sometimes can be carried away by this mindset. And what happens over time is that you can become successful at all of these unimportant things and you're becoming not successful at the most important things. So that God's standard of success in ministry gets lost behind worldly standards of success in ministry. And before you know it, biblical conviction and faithful proclamation can take a back seat to pragmatic strategies for increasing the headcount and, and the bottom line of the church. And as that happens, the sharp edges of truth get filed down until there can be almost nothing left. And the sad thing is, is that oftentimes these things happen because God's standards are traded in for worldly standards. And sometimes it happens without anybody noticing. It just sort of happens gradually. I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at that entire chapter this morning. And in many ways, this is the kind of mindset that Paul is confronting in Corinth. This is the final uh, message on this, this whole opening session, section that we've been looking at, where we've observed that there's division in the body at Corinth. And it's based on people's infatuation with their favorite teachers. Some people like Paul, some people like Paulus, and some of these other guys. That admiration and infatuation springs not from God's standards of success, but from worldly standards of success. The Corinthians admire teachers who have eloquence and the appearance of philosophical wisdom. That's what they wanted out of a teacher. 
And wherever they saw that, they wanted to admire that and promote that. They loved those teachers who could dazzle with their rhetoric and with their philosophical sophistication. And many of them were losing patience with the rhetorical and philosophical unsophistication of Paul. And so Paul explains to the Corinthians why they have gotten this wrong. Paul says that he and Apollos are stewards of the mysteries of God in this text. And he tells the Corinthians that if they are going to judge the church's ministry rightly, they have to understand three things about these stewards of the mystery of God. And here's the three things. The accountability of a steward in verses 1 through 5. The humility of a steward in verses 6 through 13. And the imitation of a steward in verses 14 to 21. It's the accountability of a steward, the humility of a steward, and the imitation of a steward. So the first thing is the accountability of a steward in verses 1 through 5. Everybody look at verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, as you read that, keep in mind that Paul has just finished explaining how ministers will be judged. Remember that at the end of chapter 3? Some will build faithfully on the apostolic foundation. That's how some members will conduct themselves. They'll build faithfully on the apostolic foundation and some will not. Some will be rewarded at the judgment because of that and some will suffer loss at the judgment because of that. Given God's judgment of his own ministers and given that no one is supposed to boast in man, chapter 3, verse 21 says, how are the Corinthians to think and to judge Paul and Apollos? Paul says that the Corinthians should regard him and Apollos as servants and as stewards. And a servant is simply someone who functions as a helper or an assistant to another. That's all it is. And of course, Paul wishes to emphasize that he is a servant of Christ. Let every man regard us as servants of Christ. And in fact, Jesus used that very same term of Paul on the Damascus road when he called Paul out to be an apostle. You'll remember in Acts chapter 26 and verse 16, Jesus says, But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister. There's the word a servant, and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. So Jesus specifies Paul's service as a ministry of the word, a ministry of the word of God. It is a service of proclamation of all that Jesus reveals to him. And if Paul is a servant of Christ, and he is a servant of Christ, if that's true, then who is he ultimately accountable to? Jesus. Paul also says that they're stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward would be recognized in, in this context as the kind of slave in charge over a household. In the ancient world, uh, slaves of powerful masters would... Um, often be given considerable, considerable delegated authority from their masters, and they would have major administrative responsibility for the affairs of the master's household. And Paul is saying that that's what his role is in God's economy. He's a steward 
of the mysteries of God. He's entrusted with managing the mysteries of God, doling them out to the Gentiles. The mysteries of God then, what is, what is that? The mysteries of God, that's a reference to the gospel itself. In Paul's language, a mystery is something that was once previously unknown, but has now been made known through the gospel. We go back and look at chapter 2 in verses 1 and 7, where we looked at what Paul said about um, the gospel mystery. And so a steward of the mysteries of God is not to do his own will, but the will of the master. Paul was not to preach his own message, but only that which he had received from Christ himself. And, and, what his, and, and so, so think about that. If he's a steward of the mysteries of God, then what is his standard of success in that? He's a preacher of the mysteries of God. What's the standard of success? Is it the number of converts? Is it his rhetorical or philosophical sophistication? Is it the kudos that he gets from the wise people of this age? Paul says, no. Look at verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Paul says that success as a steward is not defined by anything except faithfulness. In other words, success in ministry is faithfulness to the message of the gospel. Faithfulness in the content and faithfulness in the proclamation. You have to say it right and you have to say it. But then that raises the crucial question that was dividing the Corinthian con congregation about Paul. Who's to say whether Paul or Apollos are being faithful stewards? Who's the judge of that? Who's competent to make that kind of an examination? Well, Paul says in verse 3 this, But with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul says, I, I may be coming up short according to your standard of judgment, but that doesn't mean really anything to me. Your judgment of me, Corinthians, doesn't matter ultimately, nor does any human court's judgment of me. And so Paul is insisting even that that his own judgment doesn't even matter in the final analysis. Verse 4, For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now this is really a remarkable verse, because think about this. Paul says that as far as he's concerned, he's got a clean conscience. He's discharged his duty as a steward as far as he knows. He has done what Jesus has told him to do, which is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to suffer for it. That's what Jesus told him to do, and he's done that. And yet, and yet, he says that his clean conscience in this regard does not acquit him, which is his way of saying, I'm not the final judge of me. This should humble all of us. It is possible to have a clean conscience and for our conscience to be wrong. We have a tendency, I think, to, do, to be what the Bible describes as being wise in our own eyes and to not see what we ought to see about ourselves and our consciences, it's possible for them to be untroubled when they shouldn't be. 
untroubled. And so Paul is saying that a clean conscience is not even the final measure of judgment. Then what is? God's judgment alone is definitive. And so Paul says, it's the Lord who judges me. Not you, not me, not any human authority. As the Lord's steward, I will be subject to the Lord's judgment. So look at verse 5. Therefore, if that is the case, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and who will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So, so here, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, because I'm subject to the Lord Jesus's judgment, don't write me off right now based on your worldly criteria. Your criteria are worldly. The Lord's criteria for judgment is absolute justice. You're going to have to wait until he comes to see that absolute justice played out with respect to me. And what he's saying is, is that Jesus will reveal Paul's faithfulness. Even his sincerity and integrity of heart, God will make that known in the end. And then, but notice that Paul doesn't say that God is going to condemn those who deserve it in the end. He says here, he's going to bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. He'll disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Not his condemnation from God, but his commendation from God. He doesn't say God's going to condemn, but God's going to commend Paul casts it in positive terms, I think, because he believes that he's not going to be coming up short at that judgment. And when all is made clear, he's going to be vindicated. He knows the Corinthian standard of judgment is bad, but that the Lord's standard of judgment is fixed and unmoving. And he knows that standard better than the Corinthians do. And he's saying, I'm subject to that standard and that judgment. And that's all that matters to me. Uh, you know, my son, Denny, began his second grade year this year, and this year was his first time to go to a school. And on Mondays, he goes and takes four classes at a classical school. And so for the first time, we sent him off to a school. He's been homeschooled this whole time. Sent him off to a school. What kind of things do you think we told him before his first day of school? this fall. Well, among other things, we told him to obey his teacher and to do whatever she tells him to do. She's the authority. She calls the shots. And we want him to understand that her authority is really an extension of our authority. If he gets crosswise with her, he's crosswise with us. Okay. You obey your teacher. Now, this is, this has not happened. But for the sake of argument, let's pretend that this happened. Let's suppose for a moment that one evening I get a call from the teacher and she says that he's been misbehaving in class and that he's not responding to her correction. And when he's supposed to be sitting quietly and listening to the teacher, he's instead passing notes and yucking it up with the other students in the class. And the teacher has confronted him numerous times and he still persists. And let's suppose that when I confront my son with this, 
um, he pleads, but daddy, I know I'm not supposed to taunt, but the other kids love it when I do. They think I'm hilarious, and all the other boys and girls want me to talk and cut up. They are my friends. Don't you want me to have friends? That's the wrong thing for him to say, isn't it? Now, why is that the wrong thing for him to say? Because as far as his behavior and my discipline are concerned, it doesn't matter what his friends want or prefer. It doesn't matter what he wants or prefers. It only matters what I require of him when he goes to school. And his ability to dazzle his friends with classroom antics won't help him at the bar of my judgment. <laughs> okay? Especially if he ignored me to please them. It's not okay. This is why it's a small thing to Paul that some of the Corinthians appear to have judged him and to have found him coming up short. The only thing that matters to him is faithfulness to what God has called him to do and to be. And to please them and not please God is to fail at everything that matters. What is required of a steward is that he be found faithful. If that's true, two quick applications on that. If you are going to be a servant of Christ, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of you ultimately, except for Jesus. If you are trying to please men, you cannot be a servant of Christ. Because what people expect of you is oftentimes at odds with what God expects of you. And so you have to make a choice and you can either live to please the good opinion of your friends and neighbors or you can live to please the good opinion of the Lord Christ and him alone. And so if you're going to be a servant of Christ, you can't be a man-fearer your whole life. You have to live as if Jesus' judgment matters most to you. Second thing we would say about this Paul talks about him being a servant of Christ, servant of the Lord, steward of the mysteries of Christ. Paul is not just any servant, okay? Paul is an apostle, and so Paul is special here. Jesus Christ selected him to bear his name to the Gentiles. He has a commission and an authority from God that none of us has as servants of Christ. The Corinthians had no right to stand in judgment over Paul when he was doing exactly what God had told him to do. And we just need to realize, and this is where I, I want us to be careful here, but we need to realize that we have no right to stand in judgment over Paul and over this revelation from Paul and all the controversial things that he will have to say to us in this letter, we don't have any right to stand in judgment over him. Before we are done with this letter, I will assure you, Paul is going to be getting up into our business here at Kenwood Baptist Church. He is going to talk about church discipline next week, about sexual immorality, about lawsuits about sex within marriage, about divorce, about wives following the leadership of their husbands, about speaking in tongues, and more. And you may be tempted at some point to say, you know, I really think Paul whiffed it on this one. 
I don't like what he says here. I'm going to go with what some of the things Jesus said, but I, I don't really care about Paul's little personal hangups about all these private things in my life. Paul and his quirky hangups, they can, he can just lump it if he wants. <laughs> okay? Um, listen, that is not an option for us. Um, who are we to judge the servant of another? We do not stand in judgment over this word from Paul. This word stands in judgment over us. And if we find ourselves unhappy with Paul, we are really unhappy with God. You say, well, who would do that? We've had to discipline someone before in our church because of this. Someone said, I don't agree with what the Apostle Paul says. So if you feel that coming up in your heart, just understand this is exactly the kind of questioning that Paul was getting as he wrote to the Corinthians. They were calling him into question. But he is a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God, which means we've got to listen to him. The accountability of a steward, verses 1 through 5, the accountability is the Lord himself at the judgment. The second thing, though, is the humility of a steward. Look at verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. I think about this. Paul has talked about God's judgment and what's required of stewards. And he's applied all of it to himself and to Apollos. But he is really only speaking, in, in one sense, metaphorically about himself and Apollos because their relationship has only ever been harmonious with each other. They're, Paul and, uh, and Apollos aren't at odds with each other. And what they're teaching is not at odds with, with each other. And so he gives himself and Apollos as examples of how co-workers ought to be relating to one another. But his real target, his real target is not any divide between him and Apollos. His real target is the divisions in Corinth. And those who are in Corinth who have self-inflated egos and who are causing different people to question Paul. He says he's writing for their benefit. He wants these boasters in worldly wisdom not to go beyond what is written. Now that last little phrase there, don't go, I don't want you, I'm writing to you so that you won't go beyond what is written. What does he mean by that? What is written uniformly just about in Paul's writings is, is referring to scripture. And that's certainly what he's talking about here. He's saying, I don't want you to go beyond Scripture. What Scripture does he have in mind? Uh, I think the most likely Scripture that he has in mind, he doesn't, he doesn't cite one here, but up until this point in chapter 4, he has cited about six different Old Testament texts. And I think he's referring to those. I think he's saying, I don't want you to go beyond what's written in Scripture that I've already quoted to you. For instance, when he quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart, quoting Isaiah 29, 14. Or chapter 1 and verse 31. As it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, quoting from Jeremiah. 
So I think when Paul says, I don't want you to go beyond what's written, I think he's saying, don't go beyond what those texts teach, which is that it's wrong to boast in man. Boasting in human beings, therefore, is what it means to go beyond what is written. There's no basis for being arrogantly puffed up one against the other, as if one should esteem some other teacher and not Paul. Paul's saying, don't go beyond what's written. Don't be boastful in man and put these competitions up between the different teachers. It's absurd. None of you has any reason really to boast. Verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Those rhetorical questions mean something like, who do you think you are? Some translations render that first question not as who sees anything different as you, but, and this may be, I think, right, who regards you as superior? Answer, nobody. Remember, he already said, not many of you were wise according to the flesh, but apparently you think you're wise according to the flesh. Who regards you as superior? Nobody. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Why do you boast? Answer, you don't have an excuse to boast. Paul is saying that they have no right to be arrogant or prideful about human wisdom. And then just hold this over Paul's head as if he's, as if he's falling short. Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. He's being a little ironic here, right? The, the Corinthians think that they've already possessed all wisdom. And they're holding this standard of worldly wisdom up. They think that they're so smart, so philosophically sophisticated. And according to the Stoic and Cynic philosophers at the time, they often argued that their wisdom set them free from attachment to things and therefore made them, in effect, rulers of all things. And so maybe because of their philosophical wisdom, they've all, they're already ruling as kings. They're already rich. In short, they thought, the Corinthians, they thought their own wisdom had set them free and so they were... They are living high on the hog as kings, as it were, there in the church at Corinth. Paul says, okay, would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. They may think they're reigning in the new heavens and the new earth, but Paul is under no illusion about this. Okay, Paul wishes they were reigning because then that would mean that the kingdom had come and he would be reigning with them. But contrary to what those, these arrogant folks in Corinth were thinking, Reigning in glory is not the lot of the follower of Christ now in this age. Our lot is a way of suffering for the great name. That's what our lot is. Not to rule, not to live in just ease all the time, but a, a lot of suffering and difficulty. Verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. And it's as, it's as if Paul is saying to the Corinthians, look, you're ruling, you're so wise. You've, you're experiencing all this great uh, peace with the world and the admiration of the world. And we apostles, we're dying over here. 
We're being treated like Jesus was treated. And you think that's a problem that we're suffering? You are holding us in contempt because we're suffering and because we're poor and being mistreated? It's not a problem that we are suffering. It's the essence of discipleship that we are suffering. And our weakness on this account should not be an occasion for you to look down on us, but for you to imitate us. But as it is, there are glaring differences between Paul and those who are the arrogant ones, the boasters in Corinth. So look what Paul says in verses 10 through 13. It's a litany of things here. He's going to say what our experience is as apostles, those who are stewards of Christ and uh, servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. What's our experience versus the boasters in Corinth? We are fools for Christ's sake, which means the world regards us as fools because of our attachment to Christ. But you are wise in Christ. Somehow your attachment to Christ leads the world to con congratulate you and to say you're just great. We're fools for Christ, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We don't even have a place to live. And we labor, working with our own hands. When we're viled, we bless. By the way, who told us to do that? Jesus. When they revile, you bless them. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Do you think being regarded well by the world is a sign of success? In Paul's opinion here? Do you think being wise by the standards of the world means anything? Paul says we are fools for Christ's sake, which means for his part, he's willing to forego the world's good opinion, to forego their praise, to forego the, the cushy reception he might receive if he just stroked their philosophic egos. He's willing to forego all of that. He would rather lose everything and be a servant of Christ than to keep his comfort and to be a mercenary for the faithless. And as you listen to Paul talk like this, you may think he's announcing some strange way of following Christ, but he's not. This is the only way to follow Christ. Do you remember the conversation that Jesus had with the apostles in Caesarea Philippi? Remember that conversation? Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Peter says, uh, Peter says, well, some people say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some people say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, which means you're the king. You own us in the world and you are Lord of everything. You have power over everything. The kingdom is coming with you. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Mm -hmm. He is King Jesus, and you are right to say so. And then, you know what Jesus does? It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and on the third day be raised. Remember that? He spends all this time in his ministry showing them that he's the king. He's the Christ. And convincing them that he was the king in Matthew 16, they get it. They accept it. But when he says the king has to suffer, how do they respond to that? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus says to Peter, You get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are unwilling to suffer. You are not a part of what I'm doing. Then he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? There are all kinds of people willing to embrace the kingdom in its glory, but not the kingdom if it involves suffering. They only want to be admired by the world. They only want to be, have the same exaltation and approbation from the world. The apostles had a problem with it. They could call him king, but could they see that the king was going to suffer? And could they accept what Jesus said to them? It's not just that I'm going to suffer. You have to suffer if you're going to follow me. Do you think suffering for Christ is an exceptional way of following Christ? Do you think that if in this church we are mistreated by the world because we follow Christ, do you think that's a sign of failure? If people speak ill of us because we take a stand for truth, do you think that that's a sign of failure? Because we don't secure their good opinion of us? There are ministries that that's all that they do is try to figure out how to secure the good opinion of those who are outside and who don't love the truth. That is, we cannot become about that. If we do, we will lose everything. It is required of a steward that he be found faithful. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Where do we get the idea that faithfulness is going to earn us attaboys from the world? It's not going to do that. And if it does, that's exceptional. It's not the norm. The norm is a taking up of the cross and following Jesus. Anything less than that is fake Christianity, not real Christianity. So Paul talks about the accountability of the steward, the humility of the steward, and finally he talks about the imitation of a steward. Everybody look at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish. To admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul's really had his foot on the gas up until this point. He's been very critical of the Corinthians. He's been, the, the rebukes have been heavy. He's been very hard on them. 
He's kind of letting up now at this point. He's been leaning in with sharp criticism, but now he's saying, look, he's, it's kind of the old uh, bromide. Look, I know you need a spanking, but this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, okay? Um, he's being fatherly with them at this point. And he's trying to tell them that he loves them and he cares for them like a father would his children. And in a real sense, they are his children. Because even though they may have a lot of preachers and teachers who come through Corinth, there's only one guy who came there and preached the gospel to them and evangelized them and when they first came to faith. There's only one founder of the church there, and that's, that's Paul. And so he views himself as his father in the faith. And so what does he say? Verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Paul says, you need to stop living like kings and start living like me. You need to imitate me, the father in the faith, someone who's actually following Christ. Timothy can help you to do that. Stop imitating the world. And if you do that, if you stop imitating the world and you start following me, it's going to cost you. Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. And I think that these arrogant ones are Paul's real target. All of his admonitions are aimed at these arrogant ones. Those who are infatuated with worldly wisdom, who are, who are getting tired of the weak and the beat up Paul. All of those arrogant folks are really bold when Paul is not there. They're carrying on like Paul may never show his faith again, face again in Corinth. They're making up their own rules about how they're going to do things in Corinth. But Paul says in verse 19, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Which, if you're sitting in Corinth and you're one of the arrogant ones and you read this, you need to have a shiver going down your spine at this point. This is the equivalent of the kids being rowdy upstairs and dad's yelling upstairs, don't make me come up there. Because if he comes up there, you're not going to like what he does when he gets up there. Paul is saying, I will indeed be along to Corinth soon enough. And when I get there, I'm not going to be scrutinizing the rhetorical skill of the arrogant ones who are challenging my authority. We're not going to have a, a debate. I'm going to be exposing their power or lack thereof. How's he going to expose it? One commentator says this, presumably Paul expects that if necessary, God will unleash some manifestation of the power of the spirit that will humble the arrogant ones. Can you imagine being in a Holy Spirit power showdown with the Apostle Paul? You're not going to win that one. You're going to lose every time. Why is Paul forcing the issue? Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. They have talk, I have power. And Paul's talking to them like a father at this point. Sometimes your father can say stuff to you that nobody else can say. He can humble you when you need to be humbled, when nobody else can get through. That's what Paul is doing here. He's saying that God's kingdom rule does not consist in mere human rhetoric, but in Holy Spirit power. You put a man who's a good speaker on one side and you put a man filled with the Holy Spirit of Almighty God on the other and you see what happens. It's going to be a beat down. 
It's going to be like Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It's going to be like Jesus and the Gerasene demoniac. It's going to be decisive and it's not going to be pleasant. You don't want to be on the wrong side of that confrontation. And so Paul asks in verse 21, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and in a spirit of gentleness? Paul's saying, I don't want to have this confrontation with you, but I'm willing to have it. What will it be? If you want to be spanked, I'll bring the spanking. That's what the rod is. It's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, but I'm going to hurt you if it'll humble you. What will it be? I'm ashamed to say growing up, I would often push the limits of talking back to my mom in a way that I would not do with my dad. And I would only do it when he wasn't there. You know why? Because he wouldn't tolerate any disrespect. And if I tried that on him, it would be like running into a brick wall. And I ran into it enough times to know that I didn't want to do that. I like the spirit of gentleness. I feared the rod. It humbled me and it was good for me. This is how Paul's talking to the Corinthians. He's talking like Hebrews 12. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us. We respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. It's hard to endure discipline when it's happening, but we do need it, don't we? And can't you see in retrospect how faithful, loving discipline from a father was good for you? And can't you see how it taught you to imitate your father's ways and to keep away from the foolish paths that would destroy you? And don't we need to hear these words from the Apostle Paul? the servant of Christ and the steward of the mysteries of God. Don't we need to learn his ways not to be arrogant, not to be divided against each other for worldly reasons, not to be judging our church's ministry and each other by worldly standards of judgment. Don't we need that? We do need that. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand what you've called us to do and to be. Forgive us when we become infatuated with the good opinion of those who don't know you and who don't love you. Father, we don't want to be arrogant. We don't want to be provocative for the sake of being provocative. We don't want that. We don't want to look to the world like we've got a chip on our shoulder, so spare us from being pugnacious. We don't want that. But neither do we want to be so beholden to people's good opinion and to their approval that we are unfaithful to you and come up short at your judgment. So, Father, I pray you would spare us and I pray that you would hold us and keep us faithful to this great gospel ministry you've given us. And I pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.